welcome to the Kingdom Way podcast. My name is Justin Gravat, and I hope that this will be a place where we can have meaningful conversations about the Christian faith to better help us follow Jesus, the living and reigning King. My goal is that through these theological discussions, we can better learn about the way of Jesus, which will profoundly influence how we live each and every day. The gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news Jesus preached, offers a new way of living, and that requires that we take seriously what Jesus taught and how he lived. But this work is absolutely worth it, as following and practicing this kingdom way of Jesus leads to an abundant and flourishing life as we connect learning Some of the most disputed topics today concern questions about the body, questions about identity, sexuality, marriage, and bodily rights. Is there a purpose, meaning, and value to our bodies that connects to a larger story? My guest today says that each body has a story, and how we use and view our bodies reveals much about our worldview. For the Christian, our bodies are for the Lord, as we belong to God as redeemed individuals and are called to glorify God in our bodies. My guest is Dr. Branson Parler, who serves as Director of Theological Education and Professor of Theology at The Foundry, a nonprofit ministry focused on partnering with churches to provide accessible biblical and practical training for church leaders at every level. Previously, he was Professor of Theological Studies at Kuiper College in Grand Rapids, Michigan for 13 years. He also serves as Director of Faith Formation at Fourth Redeemed Church in Grand Rapids. He writes and teaches on a variety of topics related to the Bible, theology, ministry, and engaging culture. Dr. Branson Parler, welcome to the Kingdom Way podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited about this conversation, and I really enjoyed your book, which is entitled Everybody's Story, Six Myths About Sex and the Gospel Truth About Marriage and Singleness. And I found it to be such a timely book with timely content for our culture today. There's so many questions about the body that we'll dive into here, but I'd like to start with what led you to write about these topics of marriage, bodies, singleness, sex, and more. What's the story behind the book? I've been part of a lot of conversations around many of the hot button issues. Obviously, a lot of these things are topics that people are engaged in, they want to talk about and dig into. And so Having been part of those conversations, uh, I realized that a lot of times you're having those conversations and um, we're not actually thinking two or three or four steps deeper when it comes to some of these core myths or these dominant cultural stories uh, or even the stories, that, the myths that are there in the church. And so that's a, you know, probably for about 12 years, I taught uh, worldview at the college level. And so thinking through some of those big myths. And, and then seeing then some of the intersection, the connection, the overlap between, well, you know, the reason that people might think something's just obvious when it comes to sexual ethics or questions about gender or the body or sex or whatever, really that's rooted in much deeper worldview questions. It's rooted in much deeper questions about the cultural stories or the myths that are ever present, but in a lot of ways, not always brought to the surface. And so a big driver for me was to try to help people connect the dots. And and so I think as people engage the book, one of the things that they see is it's as much about these deeper myths as it is about the specific hot button issues around the body or marriage or sexuality. 
but really trying to give people a lens to understand and see the interconnection uh, that the way in which those deeper stories come through in these uh, very embodied ways. Yeah, I think that's such good advice just in general. And I've noticed that with political discussions as well, oftentimes these discussions around abortion, immigration, war, different economic policies, it's really at a superficial level. And really the, the need is to go a little deeper to what are the foundational worldview questions being asked here. And you start your book by saying that there are three big cultural stories that answer the foundational questions, questions like, what are bodies for? Which is such a fascinating question that you pose. Mm. And you unpack the secular story of liberty, the church story of authority, and the gospel story of fidelity. Could you begin by just giving a, a brief overview of these three positions? Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, it was really important for me to uh, see the way in which the gospel uh, stands in contrast both to the secular stories that are out there and oftentimes the, the church myths and the church stories that can become detached from the gospel. And so, you know, the secular story of liberty really revolves around this idea of maximizing freedom that um, in many ways, the number one rule in our culture, the number one law that guides us is this idea of you do you find yourself, be yourself, maximize that sense of freedom often over against uh, anything or anyone that would, would try to define you or tell you what to do. And so really the goal for this story, the secular story of, of liberty, autonomy, freedom, uh, is, is rooted, you know, what are bodies for? It's really to express myself, to, to be myself uh, in a way that ultimately answers to no one but myself. Uh, and, and so I think that, that's a problem. And I think from within the context of, of scripture, um, we can unpack some of the difficulties there. But I think oftentimes then within the church, you also have this church story of uh, authority. Uh, and I want to be careful here because I don't necessarily think authority is a, a bad word. But when I use it that way, oftentimes um, I think about the way that especially young people might be taught within the church. It's just the Bible says it and the story. God says it in the story that there's not an understanding of what is the deeper story of the gospel and, and how does this flow from that? And so that can, that can very easily uh, devolve into a legalism that's rooted in, uh, you know, believe in Jesus and then here, follow this list of rules. Um, and in a lot of ways, the, the rules themselves become bigger or more important than uh, the story of the gospel. And so one of the things that I see, especially from folks who've been raised in a church is oftentimes they do struggle to answer this question, what are bodies for? That there's not a deeper sense of how our bodies are part of this story. Hmm. And so rather it's just, again, the authority of these kind of external rules um, that we don't really know why we do them. Uh, and so in contrast to both of those, I think you've got, um, you know, the kind of the church legalism on one side and from the broader culture, this sense of uh, autonomy, the individual freedom on the other side, you know, the gospel story of fidelity, you know, fidelity is, has to do with God's faithfulness. And so understanding God's covenant faithfulness to us in the body of Jesus, that at the heart of the gospel is uh, Jesus uh, himself who takes on our humanity, takes on a body and rescues us. 
uh, and that understanding who Jesus is and understanding what's going on in the body of Jesus uh, is then crucial for understanding uh, my own body and understanding what that looks like as we go forward. Uh, so that, so I think trying to navigate, it was really important for me to recognize that the gospel challenges both the broader culture story, but oftentimes challenges the stories that we maybe implicitly tell in the church that don't actually align with, with the gospel. I like how you, spe- you discuss how our specific actions and habits connect sometimes without us even realizing it, to this bigger story of reality that we believe, but sometimes it's just what we absorb around us. You know, music we listen to, podcasts we listen to, pastors we hear, uh, movies and shows that we watch. A lot of times that's just a way to absorb a certain story and that gives us certain expectations and ideas about what bodies should be for, what our goals and visions should look like. So I, I like how you unpack that. I think you even have some examples from Disney movies that we watch and that our kids watch. And I like this distinction you make between confessional beliefs and convictional beliefs. So could you unpack what you mean by these two types of beliefs and what is their importance for this conversation? Yeah. And these are, I really appreciate these terms. They're, they're not original with me. Um, Wilkins and Sanford use this in their book, Hidden Worldviews that uh, from probably about 10 years ago or so. But I find it really helpful. And part of the distinction here is confessional beliefs are what we say we believe. Uh, Convictional beliefs are what our life reveals we actually believe. Uh, And so I think it's helpful to to recognize that there is going to be some level of tension there. And part of the reality of being immersed and absorbed in our cultures, our families, other things, is that we are inhabiting these stories in ways that we're not always reflective about. And so uh, we are oftentimes on autopilot, just living out these stories uh, about what we do or why we do them without it pausing and reflecting and saying, does this actually fit with uh, what I say I believe or what, what scripture teaches or what's at the heart of the gospel? You know, so I think about something like, uh, to, to shift a little bit, like into the world of education. If somebody's like, well, uh, should I go to college? Should I not? Why should I do what I do? That a lot of times it's primarily just a question like, well, what do you want to do? What are you interested in? And so implicitly in that, there's this notion that, yeah, I might never even think about what is God calling me to do or how might God want to use my gifts to bear witness to his kingdom. It's just this assumption. I kind of tap into my interests, desires, passions. And in that way, maybe my uh, convictional belief, what I'm actually doing shows that I'm tied into this story of individualism, uh, this story of maximizing freedom, even while I would say confessionally, oh no, I want to um, bear witness to the kingdom of God. I want to be a witness for Jesus in my life, but I never see how that might affect a practical decision uh, around education or something like that. And so this is where I think we have to recognize when it comes to questions about marriage, sexuality, gender, singleness, um, to think through that, you know, what's being offered by the broader culture isn't just here, uh, participate in this act or uh, embrace this particular identity, but it's something that goes much deeper into what what's the deeper cultural story that is really underneath what you might see on the surface with some of those things. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you feel this way, but Oftentimes, it's not so much the big choices or decisions in my life 
that are the most convicting for me, but it's those small things, you know, how you interact when you're driving, um, how you respond to people online. And that's where I, I find myself most convicted about, is this matching up with what I say I believe? And then when I was reading your book, I also thought of two ideas that Jesus talks about. One is this idea that a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Then when Jesus talks about interacting with these individuals who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these mighty deeds in your name? But he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You know, th those are heavy passages when Jesus talks about those individuals. And he says that the one who does the will of my father, that's the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And it seems like there's this idea that Jesus is advocating for that what we say is important. Don't get me wrong. I think what we believe in, what we say, those are absolutely important, but how that connects with our life and what we do is just as important. And there's a real connection there for a flourishing, healthy human being. It's not perfect, like you mentioned, but there is going to be this connection to some degree for a thriving human yeah. being who's following Jesus. Yeah, I, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, I think that's, that's where for me, the challenge is as I engage these stories. And one of the reasons I like, I mentioned, you know, the book hidden worldviews is hmm. it's not so much about how can we first uh, attack uh, the people out there who have the wrong worldviews, but more about recognizing that as we look in the world and we say, hey, in the broader culture, there's these problematic worldviews, recognize those are certainly affecting how we're living and functioning as Christians. And so it's more this first, actually, this question of faithfulness. How, how is individualism or consumerism or whatever affecting me so that my life doesn't align with what I say, I believe. Uh, and so in that way, it's, it's really a challenge first to Christians and first to uh, the church to look at ourselves first before trying to just use that um, to attack the culture out there. Uh, right. Recognize a lot of these deeper stories deeply influence how we function in ways that we might not be fully aware of. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's so much easier to point the speck out in your you know, brother or sister's eye instead of focusing on the plank that's in your own eye. And I think that's a really good reminder that you're making there. In your book, you explore six myths about sex, marriage, and singleness. And I selected just a couple of the myths to talk about. And I encourage my listeners to pick up the book if you want to dive deeper and check out all the myths that Branson talks about. First myth you discuss is the myth of individualism. And I think you're right when you say that quote, perhaps no story has saturated our culture like the story of individualism. So talk about this myth and this idea, which you've already alluded to, this idea of maximizing individual freedom. Yeah, this I think is, is probably the dominant story in our culture and that it revolves around particularly this notion that uh, you know the goal of the story is to really be able to understand and be my authentic self. Uh, and so I use examples in the book from um, a variety of, of places where this story uh, just gets conveyed to us. I think, you know, I think Disney is a popular one where at the heart of so many of the Disney stories of the last few decades is, you know, how do I break free from whoever telling me what to do or defining me and, and, and being myself. I even my kids were, had a Moana coloring book and it's like, you know, one of the slogans like be who you are on the inside. It's like, this is right. That makes me wonder like, do people stop and 
I think most people, even kids, are like, oh, yeah, they get what that means. But when you really stop and think about it, it's like, what, what's the, the, this deep message about who I am, how I find myself, and how I pursue happiness? And so this story, I think, really revolves around uh, you know, not letting anything outside of yourself uh, define yourself, be who you, be who you authentically are. Uh, and I think that is something that our culture uh, across the board embraces. And so then it makes sense when you start thinking about questions around sexual identity or gender identity and, and get into some of those hot button issues that, of course, it makes sense that the primary thing that you would want to do is discover who I am and express who I am. Again, it's just so woven into the broader culture. It's not picking on, I'm not trying to pick on one group of people, but to say, that's, that's just status quo across the board. Uh, and so it really involves this sense of don't let anybody else define you. I think one of the ironies, and, and maybe this is where a lot of us feel tension around this and where I think you can start to see how the story of the gospel offers something deeper and, and different is at the same time, John Stark in his recent book, The Secret Place of Thunder, points out that we want to express ourselves, but this also a lot of times ends up in this performance where on the one hand, we don't want anybody else to define us, but on the other hand, we're always looking for acceptance based on our social media profile, et cetera. And so there's a sense of, as I express myself, uh, is it ever enough? Is it fully right? Am I getting the kind of feedback that sort of validates me uh, in that? And that this creates this this feedback loop where on the one hand, I want to be myself, I want to be true to myself. And on the other hand, I'm constantly looking uh, to others to kind of approve and validate my attempt to, you know, you do you and live that out. And so this is where I think uh, at the heart of the gospel is this idea that instead of defining ourselves, that we're first defined by the fact that we belong to Jesus rather than having our identity being something that is on us to establish that this notion of uh, we are loved by him. <clears throat> you know, the way that 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. Um, how did your catechism question and answer one? You are not your own, which is scandalous to the myth of individualism, um, but is really at this heart of uh, we belong to Jesus. And that sense of belonging hmm. uh, gives us, instead of an identity that is constantly kind of striving to achieve, striving to perform, looking for acceptance, um, we can rest in who we are in him and his love for us uh, that then allows us to, to live out our, you know, our unique individual selves, but not to do it in such a way that we're striving after this identity. But that we're right. And something I've talked about before on the podcast, and I'm curious if you agree with this, but it seems like this idea that we have to sort of find ourselves, make our own identity, the striving that you mentioned, it can be a cause for anxiety, for a lot of pressure put on you. If I have to do it all, gosh, that's a lot of, a lot of work I have to do. I have to do a lot of soul searching in that sense. And like you said, live up to certain expectations maybe that are put, put on me versus this idea of a gift of identity that's given to us. There's still significant ways I can express my unique passions and, and skills in this body of Christ. We all have different functions and strengths, but still this, this idea that 
this identity is given to us as a gift. I love that language. I think that's so helpful. And I'm curious, I know, I think you have six kids. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. A lot of times culture talks about authenticity. And I think of ideas like being genuine, honest. Those are seen as some of the highest virtues in today's culture. And part of me, I don't want to lose that those are good things, being authentic, genuine, honest. Those are all good things to inculcate in ourselves and in our children and and those around us. But still, how do we untangle that from some of the baggage that comes with our culture that is presupposed with these ideas? It's not just about being authentic. It seems like it's a little bit more than that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I appreciate the practical connection just with parenting and how this comes comes through. Mm-hmm. Because I think, I mean, to me, this is where you know, to understand true freedom in the biblical sense, true freedom comes from being embraced by God and doing and embracing the good. So in our culture, again, we think of freedom just as like sheer choice, like being able to choose what I want, being authentic and genuine in that versus this notion that I think biblically, theologically, even philosophically, true freedom comes from choosing and doing the good uh, that, that grows out of that desire there. And so when I think about how I engage this with my kids, you know, sometimes not to pick on other parents, sometimes you're like, you'll make a good choice here. Uh, and sometimes, especially kids at a younger age, need parents to say, here is the right choice. Now, whether you feel like doing that or not, uh, do the good and grow in that way, have that inculcated in you, uh, grow in the habit of doing good, even if you feel like it is inauthentic, uh, which to be honest, for many young children, it is, right? They don't, uh, I mean, especially the young ones, like they don't want to eat, they don't want to sleep, they don't want to, right? If, if you if you left it open to just say, I just want to make sure my kid authentically chooses what they think is best, it's like, that doesn't work if you're parenting young children or it doesn't work well. Uh, and so I think part of this understanding of who we are, that, that, that there is something, uh, that, that there is human nature and that there are things that are genuinely good for us and that walking in that path of what is good is the path of real freedom. And that the more, you know, as Augustine talks about, the more we, uh, we become slaves to our desires so you can freely choose to do what's not good, but that's going to lead you down a path uh, ultimately of bondage. So that even if, even if you are uh, the king of the land, you might still be enslaved to this lust for power that, uh, that really drives you. And so I think that's, as we walk with folks, ourselves, our kids and others, I think having this clear idea that the freedom that we're talking about uh, comes from embracing the good and choosing the good, even when that's that's difficult and sometimes feels inauthentic or like, I'm not being honest with what I really want. Well, yeah, because part of what you really want might be sinful and bad for you. And so guiding ourselves in that, that path, uh, I think, is, is crucial. We're excited to share with you something that's been a source of both information and inspiration for us personally, the Worldview Bulletin Newsletter. We've always been passionate about exploring and understanding the Christian worldview and apologetics and finding the Worldview Bulletin was like discovering a hidden treasure. The Bulletin delves deep into the goodness, truth, and beauty of the Christian worldview and shows why it's reasonable and relevant. 
the bulletin helps us, and I'm sure it will help you, to understand and articulate your faith in a way that's both intellectually rigorous and personally uplifting. And here's the great news. The Worldview Bulletin offers both free and paid subscription options. The free version gets you started with thought-provoking articles and insights, while the paid subscription opens up a world of in-depth explorations, exclusive content, and special features tailored for anyone who wants to delve deeper into the Christian worldview. So whether you're just starting to explore your faith or you're a seasoned believer looking to deepen your understanding, the Worldview Bulletin has something to offer. You can find it at worldviewbulletin.substack.com or just search Worldview Bulletin in any search engine. We found it incredibly enriching, and I think you will too. Uh, that's really helpful. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of virtue ethics. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast and this idea that doing the good is less about focusing on just doing the right things. That's important and necessary, but it's yeah. also about becoming and forming a, a certain type of person so that doing the yes. good and making the right choices becomes like second nature. But to yes. start that, you don't just choose, you know, tomorrow I'm going to act very justly or courageously, whatever. It, it takes time and it takes habits and it takes repetition. And like you said, sometimes it's just a matter of saying, this is what you got to do. You got to make this choice, even if you don't feel like it, with the goal of hopefully eventually you will feel like doing the right thing and make the right choice. So I, I like that progression. I think you see Jesus talk a lot about that too in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, this focus on the heart and the dispositions, not just the right choice, but how you're approaching and your motivations to the right choice is, is just as important. Another myth you talk about, Branson, is this myth of legalism. I know we touched on this a little bit when we're turning towards, not just looking towards the secular out there, we're looking also towards the church as well and how we act in the body of Christ. And here I think of some Christian churches that focus so much on what to avoid, what's bad, what's wrong, for example, sex, marriage, or relationships, and they completely ignore the positive, constructive vision so talk about this myth of legalism and how the story of God's faithfulness offers a better perspective. Yeah, I think this is one that's out there a lot. And, and you know, I didn't have this in mind actually when I wrote the book, but after I wrote the book, I went back and I was reading a couple of things from Tim Keller and the way that he talks about how legalism and antinomianism are sort of the two poles that we're constantly drawn to uh, that seem very, you know, individualism and legalism seem very different. But at the heart is uh, this notion of, uh, you know, establishing myself, of that what I'm doing is rooted ultimately in myself. And so I think the, the root problem with the myth of legalism is, you know, clearly God gives commands in Scripture, all of those things. But those are rooted in uh, a relationship that is fundamentally one uh, of grace, of his grace toward us and his faithfulness toward us. And so however we think about uh, what we're doing. It's not that we're doing this to establish our relationship with God. That's been done for us in Jesus Christ, but we're living from a place of gratitude uh, for what he's He's done for us. And so I think the challenge with, with legalism is that, you know, particularly, and here again, I think of how this comes across to kids, to youth, uh, young adults, is that oftentimes we can become fixated on, here are the rules. And, and I get it, you know, with young kids, you do. So you kind of say, here's what to do or not to do. You don't necessarily go into all the why, how, why not. 
But I think that the danger here, though, is that we just stop at that place. And, and that's where I've you know, encountered many people within the church, adults, who have kind of never got past just here's the do's and don'ts. And that oftentimes when it comes to sex and bodies and marriage, part of the problem with legalism is that it usually is rooted in this kind of uh, theology of no, or, you know, here's what not to do, thou shalt not, mm. but never really gives a positive constructive vision of what are bodies for? What is marriage for? What is singleness for? And, and this is where I think, again, if we come back to the story of the gospel, it's the story of God's covenant faithfulness to us in the body of Jesus, that, again, we start from this place of who he is for us, and then when we do talk about, you know, why, why do we emphasize, for example, marriage as a covenant? Why do you see, you know, you see this in Ephesians 5 and the way Paul talks about this elsewhere in Scripture? Well, part of the reason that we emphasize this uh, monogamous, faithful covenant relationship is because this is a sign and pointer to God's covenant with us uh, in Jesus. And so our marriage then is taken up into this bigger story. It's pointing to this deeper reality. When we talk about, I think the way that 1 Corinthians 7 emphasizes the way that many Christians, maybe more than we would acknowledge, uh, are called to singleness. And that singleness is a sign and pointer to the reality of the kingdom of God. As Paul mentions there, in the resurrection, in the life to come, there will be no more marriage. And so in some ways, single people point to the centrality of the family of God as our first family, rather than uh, even thinking about uh, the way uh, we oftentimes look at marriage and kind of hold that up as the be all and end all. When in the big picture of, of scripture, ultimately that comes to an end in the fulfillment of all things. And so part of what we're, what we're getting at, at least for me, it's crucial that if I'm going to say, here's what you should do, that I can help explain, here's why we do that. Here's why that is ultimately tied to the story of who Jesus is for me. Uh, because that's the thing that I think we oftentimes will, we struggle to articulate is, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe in what he's done for me. What does that have to do with sexual ethics? Like there's not a lot of connection. Uh, and so to be able to say, if we live lives that are faithful to Jesus, it's going to prompt questions from the world around us. And I want people to be able to say, well, here's, here's why I live this life of singleness and celibacy. Here's why I look at marriages between a man and a woman. And it's this lifelong fidelity that's meant to point to the faithfulness of, of God. That, that It's really crucial for us to be able to connect those things. So that even there, as we're, we're thinking about, you know, what are bodies for? It really is, I talk about this in the book in terms of 1 Corinthians 6 and this idea of the temple, our bodies being the visible presence of God. Uh, that's really strong language. And that uh, if our bodies are meant to bear witness to the kingdom of God, put the character of God on display, you know, that's a, to me, that's a much richer and deeper motivation than just, you believe in Jesus now, follow this list of rules. That we're actually, our bodies are taken up in the story of the body of Jesus and they're meant to point to his body so that a watching world will see. You know, they might not be able to totally compute, right? This is going to look a little bit strange, uh, but this is where for us and for the broader culture, uh, we need to be able to articulate 
that connection between the deeper gospel story and then what am I doing with my body at an interrelate. Right. Yeah. I think you, in your book, you talk about Christians leading questionable lives in the sense that it, we stand out. We're a light where people say, why do you do that? Why do you say that? And then we can answer that as part of living out this, this story and the gospel news. And I think that's, that's a helpful way to do evangelism is just by living in a certain way that draws people. And I, I love this reframing that you've talked about of a theology of yes, instead of a theology of no. I like to think of it as I want people to want Christianity to be true, you know, not just that they think it is true. That's obviously important as well. But this idea of wanting Christianity to be true because it offers this vision of an abundant, flourishing life as we follow Jesus. And I think that's that's so important to frame it that way in this positive yes theology versus a theology of don't do this. This is wrong. And I think that comes up a lot, too, when we're talking about questions of homosexuality, gender identity. I think you talk about in the book how we go to these sort of passages which say, you know, this is sinful, this is wrong, don't do that. And there's a place for that because it's in the biblical text, of course. But instead, what if we started with this positive vision of what is what is God's design and vision and purpose in marriage, relationships, singleness, and starting with this positive vision where we invite people into it versus just saying, don't do this, this is wrong. One thing you did mention is antinomianism. I wonder if for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with that idea or that term, could you briefly unpack what you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. That's a, that's a fun theological term I like to throw out there, but you know, really has this idea of, in some sense, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it something like cheap grace, where it's like, I believe in Jesus. So now therefore it kind of doesn't matter what I do. That's where the, you know, the Greek word namos means law. So anti-law. Um, that, you know, this posture that on the one hand, you have legalism saying like, it's, you, it's all about the law. Your relationship with God is established through the law. Then you get the flip side. And I think this comes through in the individualism of our culture, the flip side that says, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, just kind of carry out. Like, even if you're a follower of Jesus, God loves you end of story. So therefore do what you will. And I think it's clear that both of those fall short biblically of this vision of, God's grace given to us, a life, a spirit-empowered life of gratitude that flows from being rooted in Jesus. No, it's helpful. Thanks for defining that. One final myth I wanted to talk about is this myth of naturalism, this idea that we are fundamentally just evolved chunks of matter. And you connect this with a, a, several really fascinating ideas like scientism, gender identity, birth control. Mm -hmm. Overall, what is this myth of naturalism and how does the Christian story offer something better? Yeah, it's really, naturalism is this myth that, you know, we're nothing more than matter in motion. And so I think in a lot of ways, you know, this goes actually together with the individualism of the broader culture. So if we're nothing but matter in motion, then it's up to me to define myself, to decide what I'm going to do, how I'm going to live, how I'm going to function. So you, it's interesting to see how those two interact with each other. And so I think a lot of the ways that this comes through in our broader culture, you know, one example that I use in the, the book is this notion of, uh, particularly in medical ethics or the way that we treat the body through sex, oftentimes is that there's no intrinsic meaning there uh, in and of itself. And so particularly in our, our culture, I think we've, we've lost any kind of boundary to what can we do with the body? What can we do to the body? And so 
because of that, there's this notion that our bodies are just purely physical, pure in some sense data with no, no uh, interpretation, no intrinsic meaning that is built into our bodies. And so I think this is why in a lot of ways in the broader culture, you know, in some sense, when it comes to question of sexual ethics, as long as two people consent to something, then that is what makes it legitimate because there's no intrinsic meaning to our bodies. There's no inherent meaning to, to sex. And so it's kind of like, well, whatever you want to make it mean, that's, that's what it means. So this is where I think sometimes a narrative in the broader culture as well, Christians have a really low view of the body, but the culture really values the body. And, and I would push back against that and say, I think our culture especially has a very low view of the body in the sense that our bodies are nothing but matter in motion. They're plastic. We can do with them whatever we want. There's no sense of some deep meaning that is wired into our body. And so I think in contrast to that, Part of the message of the gospel is there's actually this incredibly high view of the body that Jesus himself, the eternal son of God, took on our humanity, took on our human nature, and that even today in his glorified state, ascended at the right hand of the Father, is fully human, fully with a glorified resurrected body. And so when we then think about how it is that God communicates his love, how he accomplishes salvation through the body of Jesus, that our bodies then take on, I think, a, a very high meaning. As I said, when we think about our bodies individually and collectively as the body of Christ, as, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? this is, if you know the biblical story, I mean, this temple tabernacle language is this special presence of God. His, his spirit is made manifest through us and through our bodies. And so it's it's then a very high view of our bodies and what our bodies do and what our bodies mean. And this is why I think even in, again, to, to go back to 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul talks about sexual immorality, it's interesting he doesn't say it's a sin that you do with your body. He says it's actually a sin against your body. In other words, that we're violating the meaning of our body uh, when we, in the case that he's talking about there, when men were engaging in a sexual relationship with prostitutes, violating the fidelity of their marriage with their wives. He says there's something that you're doing there. It's not just that you're sinning with your body, you're sinning against your body. There's this disconnect between what the body is meant to do, what it's meant to show, and how you're using your body. And so I think oftentimes today in our culture as a whole, we have the same kind of split of like, well, my body doesn't really mean anything, so I can kind of do whatever I want with it. And instead, we're saying, I think when you look at scripture, there's a very rich view of the body, a very high view of the body. Right. And you talk about how in this eschatological state that will be embodied forever. There's not this kind of heavenly disembodied state that we're going to be in. Rather, there's this rich, profound sense in which we're going to live forever in our bodies with King Jesus. And I love that because then it, it, you know, this is something we're not just experiencing now, but it's going to be a state that we're going to yeah. exist in forever into eternity. So that's a powerful yeah. vision you cast there. Yeah, I think that's crucial to make sure we get you know the beginning of the story and the end of the story right. That we're created as God's image bearers, including our bodies, and that the ultimate hope is this hope of the resurrection. 
Well, we just scratched the surface on your book here. Before we close out our conversation here, Branson, I wanted to ask you about uh, this ministry called The Foundry that you work with. And I saw that your mission there is to strengthen and support church leaders at every level with biblical and practical training. So talk about The Foundry, what you do there, and what does this look like to strengthen and support church leaders? Yeah, so uh, I taught for uh, about 15 plus years in higher education and about two years ago, uh, got worked in ways I didn't expect, but uh, myself and uh, a couple of, of colleagues uh, stepped out in faith to start the foundry. And a big part of what we do is trying to do church-centered ministry training uh, in a variety of ways. And so uh, we have a couple of models where we do uh, kind of a seminary at church model. And so part of what we recognize is that oftentimes traditional pathways of training like college or Bible college seminary are not accessible and not affordable to a number of people who would otherwise want to do that. And so we work with churches and church networks to set up a hub where we do church-based ministry training, church-based theological education, and kind of seminary at church. People are hungry uh, to learn, to grow, to dig in, to have more training accessible to them, but you know they don't always fit into the age or stage where they might be able to pursue some of those other higher education pathways. Uh, and so those Institute of Ministry Leadership hubs have been really critical in uh, training people across the board uh, for a variety of ministries within the local church. And so we do some other learning communities as well, but the big idea is, is trying to work with churches and church networks to cultivate learning communities, to cultivate a culture of lifelong learning so that we can train people because in different parts of the country, it looks different, but with the number of people who've left pastoral ministry in the last few years and recognizing that a lot of the traditional uh, pipelines are not functional anymore, they're, they're drying up. And so we need to have new and different ways of raising up leaders for the church, with the church and in the church do this. And so it's, it's much more focused on, you know, to use a sports analogy, building up the farm system of the local churches rather than assuming that there are free agents out there somewhere that, you know, when your church needs to hire somebody, they're just going to find them. Because again, depending on what part of your, the country you're in, it might be different. But what we're seeing, especially in the Midwest, the Northeast, is that if churches don't invest in raising up leaders from within, they're not going to be out there. That sounds like a wonderful ministry. And I'll put a link of the website in the description of this episode here. But where can people go if they want to find out more about The Foundry? Yeah, you can check us out online at www.thefoundrygr.org. So that's The Foundry GR because we're in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So thefoundrygr.org. Well, this has been such a helpful and timely discussion, Branson. Let me end by reading a quote from your book, which I think summarizes well our conversation here. You write, quote, the Christian story is not merely an intellectual story, but one that is embodied in a variety of practices, including worship, prayer, and fellowship. When we tell and show this story in our sexual ethics, our bodies powerfully symbolize and communicate the gospel story that stands at the heart of reality. Our bodies themselves are the symbols that offer up a certain interpretation of reality to the watching world, that we are called to embody the gospel in our sexuality, singleness, and marriage, end quote. So I think that's a really great way just to close out this conversation. So thanks so much, Branson, for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Great to be here. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Kingdom Way. If you found the conversation helpful in your walk with Jesus, please consider giving the show a review on your listening platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.